Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with the Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. Hello, this is Father Bill Watson for Jesuit Podcast. Today we are honored to be speaking with Father Jean-Baptiste Gassana Ganza, or we just know him as Ganza. He's a Jesuit priest from Rwanda who completed recently a six-year term as the major superior of the Jesuit region of Rwanda-Burundi in Africa. He's currently on sabbatical at Seattle University. Gonza, like many Rwandans, was deeply affected by the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi people in Rwanda. He believes his vocation to the Jesuits came through pain, grieving, quarreling with God, and anger. He says, but the Lord won, and that he was convinced he was spared for a specific mission And the mission is the healing and the reconciliation of his brothers and sisters in Rwanda. Father Gonza possesses three master's degrees, one in anthropology, one in social ethics, and one in business administration. He is an alumnus of both Santa Clara University in California and Seattle University in Washington State. We are most pleased to be speaking today on Jesuit Podcast, Sacred Story Institute, with Father Gonza of the Society of Jesus. Father Gonza, welcome to Sacred Story Jesuit Podcast, and we're excited to hear your story today and your experiences growing up in Rwanda and the work that you've done. But I'd like to invite you to offer a prayer for those who are listening uh, before we do anything else. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, Lord our God, God of our history, God of our nations, we believe in you, we trust in you, and we want to serve you, to bring your people together, to unite, to reconcile, to heal. Give us the gift that we all want, the Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom as we serve you. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Well, let's begin. I'm going to call you Gonza. You're a, a friend. I've been a friend for six, uh, seven, eight years now since you first came to Seattle University for your degree, but grew up in Rwanda. We're in your early 20s at the time of the Rwandan genocide, which will be ancient history to most of the people who are listening uh, to us. I mean, it was over 25 years ago, and that seems like in the mists of the past. So let people know what it was like to grow up at a time with that tension between the Hutu and the Tutsi tribes in Rwanda and the experiences that you had as a young man and what it was like for your country and the people that you knew. Well, thank you very much, Bill, and I'm really glad to be able to share with you and with all who are listening now to this uh, conversation. I'm a Tutsi, so one of the groups there. To give you a little background, Rwanda used to be a monarchy, and the, the king was a Tutsi, and so the Tutsi by then were assimilated to the nobles. Okay. And in, 19, in 1959, there was a Hutu uprising supported by the Belgians were the colonial power, and the monarchy was abolished in 1961. So the king went into exile, and that's when my dad and my 
his family, the Tutsi in general, experienced trouble and killings. And so as a child, you don't really understand much about these things. So my dad and my mom would tell us stories about that time in the early 60s, what they were doing and people being hunted down. And so it's only around uh, the 90s when the Tutsi rebels from Uganda attacked uh, attacked Rwanda, trying to change things and take power or have a power sharing, that we realized that this was serious. It was very dangerous. So a little bit of a little bit of background, historical background. Was the original monarchy that was undone in the early 60s, was that a colonial monarchy that was installed or was that something local to Rwanda that they had put in place? Well, it was a local to Rwanda. So Rwanda was a kingdom. So was Burundi next door. And uh, southern Uganda had also some kingdoms like those. So the colonial powers, the German first came uh, in late 19th century. And they left when they were defeated in uh, World War One, and then the Belgians took over. Okay. They all tried to use the existing structures. So the monarchy okay. was there, and so but the, by this 1959, the Belgians decided to switch power to the Hutu. They say they are the majority; they should be the ones running the country. So that's how the problem started. What were the percentages? How you know the percentage of Hutu to Tutsi people was like two thirds to one third, or most of the statistics will say that Tutsi were or still are 15 percent, and the Hutu are 84 percent, and there's okay. a small group which is one percent, the Twa, but we don't talk much about them for some reason, and it's very sad. But this is also another group which exists. But okay. the group that were in conflict is Tutsi and Hutu, the Hutu majority and the Tutsi minority. Okay. Yeah. So that's the story behind. And then the genocide came and uh, it really wiped up most of the Tutsi were in, in the country. But miracles exist everywhere. So we still have some who survived the genocide, but very few. That's the background. Um, and of the, the the genocide, there were several hundred thousand who were killed, or well, at the very end of the genocide in 1994, the UN statistics suggested that 800,000 Tutsi were killed. But now we still find bodies in the mass graves, and we exhume them. From what I hear, the number has doubled. Wow. Today, it's 1.6 million. My if goodness. they count all the bodies that we we, we have found in the late 27 years after the genocide. So that's the tragedy we experienced there, and it's still going on. The wounds are still deep, some are still bleeding, but we are trying to help in this healing process and reconstruction. And Good. The Jesuit we, and myself and the church. And We will end our interview with kind of where things are after the 27 years and the reconstruction, the reconciliation, and the work that you're doing. But you were in your early 20s. How did you escape the genocide? Well, this is very interesting. In 1991, I got a job. The war was on, and the rebels from Uganda were attacking. So there was a tension. So I, I had the job. I was uh, working in accounting. And by 1992, I just felt I needed to go back to religious life because 
I was in a seminary and then I left, went to college and got my degree and started working. Uh, I was enjoying having my salary, being autonomous and choosing my meals. And so I just had that feeling I want to go back to religious life. And I tried to, I, it was clear I didn't want to be a diocesan priest mm-hmm. at this point. And, and then I thought maybe I should be a Salesian, a Don Bosco Salesian. Finally, I just said, I need to check St. Ignatius. I had read something about St. Ignatius of Loyola, uh, and they were Jesuit in Kigali. A cousin of mine said, I have a Jesuit I know. Do you want to meet him? And so we went there. And you're 23 at this time, 23, 24? I was 23. 23, okay. So it's 1992, no, 22, uh, 1992. So we went to meet the Jesuit, Father Octave. That was his name, I remember. He's dead now. And he gave me books. Say, okay, if you're interested, go read this and then bring them back. I will give you more and then we can discuss. So uh, he took one of the books was uh, St. Ignatius' autobiography, which I really enjoyed. So I went home and read it and finished and came back. He gave me more. And then I said, I want to be a Jesuit. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it started. Now, Father Provincio, who was from Congo by then, because Rwanda, Burundi, and Zaire, were one province. So the provincial was from Congo, from Zaire, and he came for a visit and he said, yeah, you're all set. Prepare to to join us. So I stepped down from my position. Toward the end, he says, by the way, you're not going to the novitiate. We want you to come to Kinshasa and help. In a body school, they needed someone to take care of the, the, the young man, the Jesuit boarding school in high school. Okay. So I said, maybe that's not clear. I'm called to the novitiate and all of a sudden I have to go to this. And so there were many reasons for me to say, wait a minute, why, why is it this change? And so finally I went. And six months after I left Rwanda, the genocide started. Wow. And I believe that there's 90% or 99% chances that I would have been killed. Sure. Had I not crossed to Zaire, to Kinshasa. It's then that I said, oh my God, this man was inspired. And of course, there's anger. I say, God, why are you doing this? I am coming to serve you and you can't protect my, my family. Because I, I got big losses. And one of the dead relatives killed was my mother. And my mother, I said, God would have protected my mother at least. And so I had this time of crisis. It's a faith crisis. And you quarrel with God and you ask questions. There are no answers. And, and you know, it's, yeah, you, you struggle with that. Finally, my spiritual guide, who is a Jesuit from Belgium, took time and listened to me and see me crying and weeping. And then he said, okay, you're not getting answers from God, do you? I said, no, I'm asking. <laughs> And she said, okay, you're asking him why this happened. Why don't you try to ask him why you survived? Why he sent you to Congo? Why you, you know? So that was a new approach. And he uses he used the text from Moses in the Genesis and said, when God spare you from a clear danger or death, he has a mission for you. Right. And that was a turning point to me. And uh, I, I decided to stay with the Jesuit and wait to, to, to have this clear mission. 
announced to me. It took years, but now I know what my mission is. Uh, being a priest and helping and preaching the good news and consoling my people, reconciling my people and helping in healing, which is also my own healing. I'm a happy Jesuit and I, I believe that God knew what he was doing when he's, he sent me to Kinshasa. Nice. Rather than to the novitiate, which was in Rwanda by that time. Did you only just lose your mother? Did you lose other family members and cousins, relatives? Well, if I count in the larger family, I lost 87 people. My goodness. But in my nuclear family, my mother and my five siblings, we used to be nine. I thought I told you this before, Bill. So we were nine kids, and today we are four. Five were killed along with my mother. My dad had died by then because he, he got this uh, liver cancer when I was uh, 13 or 14 years. Okay. Are you the oldest? No, I used to be in the middle. I was number five of the nine. Today, I have my older sister and then two younger siblings, a sister and a, and a brother. Are they? Do they live in Rwanda or they have moved to other parts of the world? They live in Rwanda. They are both married and they got kids. So I have 17 nephews and nieces so this is pretty big joy for me to see that the family nice. has reconstructed and it's coming back yeah at the two time my this is have, have kids too so i'm, a, I'm like a grandpa nice <laughs> nice at the, at the time of at the time of the the genocide did the international community uh, not act were they slow to act what was the united states involvement or non-involvement at the time so pre, uh, prior to the genocide, the United Nations sent 2,500 troops from different countries. So Belgium and Morocco and Senegal, Ethiopia, all this. And surprisingly, when the genocide started, these troops were called back from Rwanda. They were withdrew, withdrawn from Rwanda. So they abandoned the victims for the killers. Wow. Which is a really sad story. It's still sad when we think of those troops who would have saved lives. And yeah, so we, we don't understand. Were they given a stand down order not to do it? No, they were asked to leave. So okay. the United States, so Clinton was the president, said that the troops should be withdrawn from Rwanda. So the Belgians lost 10 men. And that was an excuse for them to say, okay, we have lost our troops out of the country. So they will leave the victim to the killers and they witnessed it. So toward the end of the genocide, France decided to create what they call Turquoise, which is an operation which was supposed to come and protect, create a safe haven for the victims. But actually, it became the contrary because... Those killers had a safe place to retreat and to cross to Congo. So the France and its troops, they took the southern part of Rwanda by the border with Congo and by the Lake Kivu. And so the temporary government, which was supervising the killings, when they, were, they got defeated and moved from Kigali, running away from the RPF, they moved to the south. So they operated from that safe haven that France had created. And then when it was time to run away, they could just cross the border to Congo. And the troop, the French troops did not arrest them. 
or at least stop them from killing. They will see them killing and rooting, and and at the end they cross to Congo. And oh. that was really sad. Yeah, it was and very controversial by that yeah, time. Yeah, for from people who don't know the history, the the murders were act were terribly violent, a lot of it with machete attacks, not just guns, not just shooting people, but actually hacking people to pieces. It's terrible. Yeah, so some people had to pay to be killed with a bullet. Wow. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, people who had money would choose to pay for the killers to shoot them because mm. that's a sudden death. And the poor who did not have money they had to go through this torture and the dismantling of their bodies. There's something of the demonic almost in that type of slaughter in terms of it's like a spirit of darkness that overcome those people to do those to other people. I mean, I can't think of any other explanation for that. Well, I agree with you because in the past crisis, people will run to the churches and be protected. But this time, even churches were had become... Killing grounds? Yeah, killing grounds. And right. there's one church, if you visit me, I hope you will do, that I'll, I'll show you that people were packed into it, and the pastor himself went to call the killers, and this brought bulldozers, they broke the walls, and the walls collapsed and, and killed the people. Killed the people. Men and women. It has become a museum now. Uh, yeah, those kind of... Uh, brutal events we have them across the country and yeah darkness that's the it's demon darkness all the demons were had come to rwanda they, were. <laughs> they were all let loose you know it's uh, in periods like that with great evil sometimes there's great grace too was there any events of great grace and light that happened during that time that gave people hope or kind of premonition of what was happening yeah there are more and more stories about people who really should be considered martyrs of unity or reconciliation. There are many Hutus who protected the Tutsi. Okay. And we even have Hutu who were killed because they were protecting the Tutsi. So stories are coming out. There's one sister, a nun, a religious woman. Her name is Felicite. Her brother was an officer in the army, Habyarimana army, and he brought, he sent a car to take the nuns, her sister, his sister, sorry, because he thought their community was going to be attacked. And Sister Felicite said, my brother, if you love me, take me with my sisters. Mm-hmm. If you don't take my sisters, I'm not leaving. I'll choose to die with them. That's what happened. So she was mm. killed with her sisters. Wow. For me, this is a it's a case of canonization and martyrdom. So yes. we have many stories like those, um, which gives us a lot of hope that Jesus did not die completely in Rwanda by that time. The spirit was at work, and we can see. Darkness mm. overwhelmed the little flames of light, but those flames did not die completely. So we can make a big fire from them again. For people in the United States, you know, we've got a a lot of political issues around uh, racial injustice and things like that. Is there any equivalent in the United States? You know, it seems like the, the 
the divide between the Utu and the Tutsi is so profound that there is either some type of is it is it a cultural bias? Is it is is it is it have to do with the fact that the the Tutsi were a small uh, ruling minority for many years and there's vengeance against them? What what was the reason for the incredible violence that happened uh, in Rwanda from your perspective? From my perspective, I think. There are many combined factors. The first one is that the original social structure was completely destroyed by the colonial powers. In the past, the king, as soon as you became a king, you would change a name and you would be the father of the three groups, the Hutu, the Tutsi, and the Twa. And you would consider that way. Now, when the Belgians started the propaganda saying this is the majority, truly they, are the, they, they were here before the Tutsi came. They were, some people started saying that the Tutsi came from Ethiopia. They thought they, they looked alike and like the cow culture. And so that propaganda started. And the politicians from the Hutu side say, these people do not belong here. That's why they were killing them and throwing them in the Nile. Say, the Nile has to take them to where they belong. which is Ethiopia. So under the colonial power, we have to acknowledge that the heavy burdens of colonialism was more on the Hutu side than on the Tutsi. Okay. Because both Belgians and uh, Germans before them, they were using the Tutsi as the middle managers. See what I say? So Mm -hmm. let's say all the chiefs will be Tutsi. So if the Hutu are asked to go and dig and work on a road, the Hutu will be working on the roads, but the Tutsi will be standing with a stick to punish whoever is not doing his job. So that's why the Hutu considered it. Actually, the pain was coming from the Tutsi, not not directly from the Belgians or the okay. Germans. So the hatred, I think, built at that time. Now, when the Hutu movement started they worked on that, saying, these people do not belong here. They are they oppressed us for centuries. And the Belgians were feeding that, those stories by saying, hey, you know, these guys, we, maybe they, they came from, from uh, Ethiopia. So by the time of the abolition of the monarchy, the Hutu politicians were working on that propaganda. And the people said, okay. oh, they don't belong here. So we can kill them. We, Okay. Go unpunished. We can steal their cows and go unpunished, and so that's how it started. But it was promoted by the Belgian, by the Belgians. Yeah, I think the Belgians they installed an ID where you have to, they have to write either you are Hutu or Tutsi, and how they will determine that you are Tutsi, they will come and and measure your nose. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> so and if your nose is longer, oh, this is a Tutsi. If you it's shorter and larger. Oh no, this right. is good too. You know, those kind of things. That's racism. And but now we are on the hope side because the, the the Kagame regime has started to include everyone. Okay. So Kagame is a Tutsi. The chair of the Senate is a Hutu. The chair of the lower chamber is a is a Hutu lady. The prime minister is a Hutu. We have half 
Tutsi officers in the army, half Hutu, and the police the same. So we begin to see that this conflict is diluting, at least inside, from inside. Okay. The problem is now the propaganda coming from those Hutu who went outside, Very who good. related okay. to the former regime, and they continue to talk about possible reconciliation between the Hutu and the Tutsi, that the Tutsi are bad, Kagame is bad, and RPF is bad. And so we hope that we are going to make more progress in reconciliation. Uh, reconstruction is, is really satisfying. If you go there, you see new roads, new schools, new, new hospitals. So the country is moving forward. The economy yeah. is getting stronger, though we don't have many resources, but good governance, fight against corruption. And so those are social injustices that used to feed the library between the Hutu and the Tutsi, they are gone. So okay. you, can, you can have education, you can have uh, a job, you can employment. They don't look at your ethnic identity. Well, we still have problem, political problem, but I think we are moving forward and good. everyone can contribute to that. Good. Well, we will end with uh, some of the hope looking forward. Uh, when we come back for our second part, I'd like you to talk about your life in the society, uh, your education at, at both Santa Clara and Seattle University, and some of the work that you have done both in school building and also your role as superior of the uh, Rwanda-Burundi Jesuits. Okay, so we'll come back. So, uh, Father Gonza, we're back. I first met you when you came to Seattle University for uh, a degree program. Tell people what you have done since your ordination and where you were ordained and kind of the trajectory of your apostolic life, your educational life, and the things that you've been doing uh, in the period since you entered the Society of Jesus. Well, I was ordained in 2005, so that's 16 years ago. Uh, My first mission, I was ecclesial assistant for the CLC. I don't know if you know the CLC. Yes, yeah, the Christian Life Community, right? Yes. So I was the their kind of a chaplain. I don't know. We call it a ecclesial assistant. Okay. <laughs> for, for Rwanda. Uh, that's how I took them to the World Assembly in Fatima, Portugal, and then to Beirut in Lebanon. I was nice. very happy in that mission. That was my first mission. But I was also the treasurer of our retreat house, uh, Santo Christus in Kigali. So I was combining nice. both, and I was helping also in different parishes for sacrament, baptism and weddings. And yeah, that was my first mission before I moved to California for my licentiate in theology, nice. moral theology. A little question on the CLC before we move into that. The uh, CLC is not terribly active in the United States. How much of a dynamic movement, and it's run by the Society of Jesus worldwide, and in different countries it's got more energy than others. So how was it? What was the the shape and the experience? You know, what, what age groups worked in the Christian life communities in uh, in Rwanda? So we had different ages. We had young couples, young intellectuals, that's how we used to call them. They mostly speak French or English. And then we had older men and women who, for most of them, did not, could not speak English. And some had, could hardly speak French. So 
the, we had to translate the speech exercises and wow. all the documents into Kinyarwanda, the local language. That was the main task. Okay. <laughs> so I was uh, working with those two groups. Those who could speak French and English, it was easier because you could just bring a book in English or in French. And Were there communities all over the country? Are we talking the thousands of people in terms of the uh, number of people who belong to CLCs? The larger number is in Kigali for sure. And then Butare had a group and Kabgai, it's another place. So we have in four locations, but Kigali was the base. It has most of the uh, members of the CLC. And what is interesting with the CLC for me as a young priest is then that I tested the impact of the spiritual exercises in reconciliation. Because we had both Hutu and Tutsi. Sure. And uh, I remember at the beginning, we could pray and do things, but there was still some animosity between some members because of that. And there was this woman, she was always provocative. She was a Tutsi, she had lost all her family. And then she would always try to tease, but negatively, a Hutu woman who was in the group. Whenever she, the Hutu would talk, the Tutsi would react, but you could feel like she's trying to demolish. Right. So I, one day I decided that we should go for a retreat. One of the exercises I gave them is, can each one of you share how the genocide impacted your life? So the Hutu woman actually had never had a chance to tell her story. People would just look at her and say, oh, she's a Hutu, therefore she's okay. She, yeah, she, she had no troubles, right? Yeah, she doesn't understand our, our, our suffering. So when she opened her mouth, I personally cried. This Hutu woman was married to a Tutsi man, and the Tutsi man was killed before mm. her eyes. And the killers punished her for having married a, a Tutsi by raping her. All three of them raped her, one after the other. And unfortunately, she got infected with HIV, HIV uh, wow. virus through the rape. Now, she was struggling with that memory and also that infection. She was HIV positive. She had been raped and she had lost her husband. Yeah. And she had two boys to raise herself with a small salary of a teacher. You know, and when she told her story, I saw the change since then. So the Tutsi woman who used to tease her, and she's the one who stood up, went, gave her a hug, and they both cried. We all cried that day. Then I said, CLC and the spiritual exercises are a powerful tool to bring people together and also to help in healing. The tears that were shed there, there were tears of healing. Yes. Beautiful, beautiful. So my time with CLC was very deep and rich and energizing for my Wonderful. vocation and my Jesuit vocation and Wonderful. my priesthood. Yeah. So you moved from that, you uh, come and do uh, theology in California? Yeah, I came for my licentiate uh, at Berkeley. And when I finished, I was sure that I was going to be involved in reconciliation and healing as a priest. But I, I believe that at the same time that poverty is something that can also divide people. Mm -hmm. There is a proverb in my mother tongue that those who are sharing a small piece of bread 
who start calling each other selfish, gourmand in French. How do you say gourmand in French? <laughs> Someone who doesn't care about the others, he just wants to have all the food for himself. Right. A gourmand, so, a gourmand, right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the proverb there. Uh, and I believe that if we want to reconcile people, we need to also think of other ways of reconciliation. And the ways were like starting a project where you have Tutsi and Hutu as partners who work together and talk to one another and share ideas and make profit and move forward. That's how the ideas of doing a business administration came. So I decided to come to CRU to form an MBA program. Excellent. Which I earned uh, my degree. I earned it in 2012. Uh, you were here when I had my graduation. I keep good memories. It's, it, it's hard to believe it's that long ago. I mean, when you came back a couple of months ago, I thought well, you were gone like for about two years, but it was six yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, nine years. I, I, I graduated nine years ago. So when I was here, I started a project about the school, which is a more interesting part. I had started a school already. We had elementary school. I've been involved with that project in Kigali. And it was time to build middle school and high school. And my provincial said, can you use your time in Seattle to try to raise money? Because the kids, the oldest kids have to move (laughs) to the middle school. We need new buildings, right? (laughs) Yeah. So I said, I'm a student. Well, you can be a student and a fundraiser. So, okay. So I started talking to people and God was on our side. I got money. I started sending the money back home. And when I finished my studies here, I went to be the president of that school. Excellent. How many students total uh, between elementary, middle, and high school? Today, the elementary school has 674 kids. The middle and high school have 419. And from September, God willing, we will have the preschool. We'll begin with 90, but in three years, there will be 270. Wonderful. uh, Kids on campus. So by the end, we might have 1,600 or 1,700 kids on our campus. Anyway, so I raised money and I was very successful. And I hope I will continue to be successful because I'm going back to try to finish the project. Well, it's a very important project. And I think it opens people's hearts to want to support something like that. So, Well, the best part of this project is that the parents are Hutu and Tutsi, the kids are Hutu and Tutsi, the teachers are Hutu and Tutsi. And me in the middle of all this, I rejoice and I Nice. Bring our contribution to change the course of our history. Let's end this second part here with just uh, your experience of being superior of the Jesuits in uh, Rwanda, Burundi, and what were the uh, issues that you faced, uh, the greatest consolations, the greatest challenges? Thank you for that question. Well, first of all, I just said that I was very happy in school with the kids. Okay, right. Now, right after two years, they say, you know what? You're going for tertianship. Okay. Relationship is six months. I said, okay, I can go. So we appointed someone to step in. And and when I came back from the relationship, I said, by the way, Father General wants you to be the next provincial. So they gave me the letter. <laughs> right, right. So I was kind of angry. You know, I'm starting <laughs> project and all of a sudden you change it in two years anyway. So I went to that. Now the challenge was even bigger because I was the superior, major superior from Rwanda and Burundi. And Burundi has 
almost a similar history as Rwanda. They have their own issues and wars and killings, and they are they're at a different level in their process of reconciliation. Okay. Sometimes I have a feeling they haven't started yet, but they, they claim they're doing it. So, But what we see on the ground. So this became a bigger challenge, but also between Rwanda and Burundi now, there's no warm feelings. So Kagame on the Rwandan side and the, their president there, they don't get along these days. So we hope that this will change. But So it was a challenge for me to travel there and when you know that mm, they don't, they are not very happy with the Rwandans, and then missioning Rwandan Jesuit there, because the Burundians are still few as compared to the Rwandan Jesuit. So it was a challenge. I had to go, and we have big, two, two big schools. We have a retreat house. We have a JRS projects, and then we have a big center for HIV. And for people who don't know, JRS is Jesuit Refugee Services. Yes. Uh, and then we have this uh, center which helps people living with HIV AIDS, uh, trying to provide whatever they need and accompanying them spiritually, psychologically. So we have big works in Burundi, but the Burundian Jesuits are very few. We have to mission Rwandans or more. Yeah, I was going to ask you about vocations. What are vocations like in the two countries? Yeah, so due to social context, we, we have vocations, but I have to confess that some of them are not good, okay. are not rightly motivated. Some will come think, trying to get a way out. We have some young men who come and do whatever it takes, and when they get outside or they get their degree, they leave. Sure. But I think 50%, we have a 50% retention rate Okay. Uh, which, which is good. So one of one of two remains with us and works. So, so the the province is growing. Right now, we are ninety eight members. Uh, Novitiate in each country, and one in Rwanda, one in Burundi. Novitiate is in Rwanda for the two countries. For the two countries, okay. Yes, we we don't have a philosophy. We have to go to Harare or France or Rome. We don't have any house of formation apart from the Novitiate. Okay. Uh, in the, in the province, so we, our young men have to go abroad for their training in Kenya for theology and Abidjan uh, theology as well. And nice. What were you, what are you most pleased with or satisfied with in your uh, from your six years of being superior? Well, I always enjoyed uh, welcoming new novices, vocations. Yeah, when you see young men who come and some of them are really have, uh, deeply into Christ, it gives me when they take their vows, I love that. Ordinations nice. were moments of consolation for me. Great. Okay. Oh boy, that that was good. And then the new works and uh, yeah, in our schools and success and we we have I, I witnessed the hand of God in our work. Though we are few, though we don't have money, but we don't know how we get the means for our mission. So which is God's providence. It's divine providence for me. Sure. Uh, and I was very happy to also have Tutsi and Hutu in the Society of Jesus. That was a school for me to see how to bring people together, how to address issues, how to address fear that some have for one another. The Tutsi will be fear. We have fear. The Tutsi will have fear in the same community. 
And then you try to create structures that help people feel loved and equally considered. So Wonderful. Excellent. Yeah. When we come back, we're going to look at where Rwanda is right now and the process of hope for reconciliation in the future. So thank you very much for the Gonzo. We'll be right back. Thank you. So, Father Gonza, in this last section, let's look at uh, where things stand from your perspective as a spiritual leader, man of God, a Jesuit priest, a Rwandan, where things stand for the future of the people of Rwanda, the Hutu and the Tutsi, and what do you see as kind of the greatest hope? And let me just begin with this question. You had a couple of uh, weeks ago, you had told me that I need to come uh, to see this particular church, though they're trying to raise money for this church. So why don't you begin with that church and kind of the story behind that? Yeah, this priest who died in uh, Utah recently, Father Ubald, who was very much involved in reconciliation, and he is also gifted with the healing powers. So he can pray for people and people will get healed. And he, was he Rwandan? Was he Rwandan? He was Rwandan, Rwandan. So he started a center, which it sounds better in my mother tongue, but the name means this. Center for of a secret for peace. It doesn't translate right. Okay. Uh, I had a discussion with a, one one of his partners who lives in Wyoming here. So center for secret of peace. Well, why don't you do oh. it in French? Why don't you do it in French for those who will understand it then? We oui. uh, centre. But he put it in Kinyarwanda. Okay. Centre pour le secret de la paix. Okay, and in Rwandan? Urugo Ivangaryamahor. The secret of peace. That's the name. The secret, the secret of peace. Secret to peace, I think. Secret to peace, okay. Secret to peace. The secret that if you get it, it's like a treasure. You sell everything you have to get that. Very good. Peace. So uh, now this man died. The church is already there. They had more things to build and like rooms for people to come and stay. It's like a hospital. Okay. It's like a hospital. Someone who needs peace, who needs to be healed, can stay because some of the healings can come after one day or two days, a week, you know? So the idea from that priest who is the founder of the project, a Secret for Peace, or to Peace, um, he wanted this to be like a hospital for people uh, who want... Who, who, who miss, who don't have, who, who lack peace, okay. who hunger for peace, who thirst for peace. You know? uh, so they are, they, they, they are raising money and they will continue building. They approached me. They want me to be on their board. Uh, that's in the southern, southwestern part of Rwanda. But now where Rwanda is, coming back to your question, uh, I think Rwanda is at, at a very good place now. But I have to acknowledge it's still fragile. Okay. It's fragile because we have these uh, rebels coming from Congo. They're still attacking. And whenever they attack from Congo, from Burundi, you can see the people get back to the same tension and fear. And so it brings back uh, the, the ghost of the past, you know? 
So until we get to reconcile and agree on things that will prevent these attacks from neighboring countries, I think our peace and our stability are fragile. Okay. But if you visit today the security, you can travel from one place to the other. Uh, you don't feel that ethnic tension. It's not there. Okay. Because you go to the same schools. And uh, in the past, under Habyarimana, Tutsi could not go to school. The Hutu had everything. Tutsi could not enter the army. They could not enter the government. But now it's equal. Nice. Sometimes they go to more than Tutsi and Tutsi. So that it's a it's a big achievement, I think. And was it it was a Rwanda at the time in the sixties and even at the beginning of the genocide between the two groups, were they equally Catholic in terms of religion? Yeah. This is surprising. We share everything. We share the language, it's one language. Um unlike Congo, which has more than two hundred language, local languages. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah, for us, it's a one language, and we share the same beliefs. You have equal numbers of Tutsi and Hutu in the Catholic Church, and um, the Protestant, the Methodist, the Baptist. And so we we share everything. We even yeah. share the, geogra- the geography, because you don't have this region, you say this is a Hutu zone, or it's a Tutsi zone. No, we are mixed up. We, we are all together. Nice. You know? Um, so to, 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 to end with this, I'm full of hope for my people and good things are ahead, but we need to protect our achievement by being smart and trying to find new ways of reconciling people and, um, diluting the fear that is there. Fear is destructive. It is indeed. It's very destructive and we need to trust one another the best way to trust is to go for social justice. Good. Social justice. Take well, care let's... of the poor and uh, uh, offer jobs, create jobs for the young people finishing college now. And offer they... school and education is important too. Right? It's, yeah, school, that's why I'm glad to contribute in that area of education of the youth. And you get a chance to pass the good values and Christian values and love and Tolerance and solidarity and justice. Nice. Yeah. Father Jean-Baptiste Gonza, thank you so much for sharing these stories of your life, your faith, your work. I would ask you if you would be willing to close us with a prayer for hope for the people of Rwanda and hope for peace in the whole world. Again, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this conversation. And we pray for all who will listen to our dialogue here. Let the words be yours. Let your spirit work for peace, for reconciliation, for unity, not only in Rwanda and Burundi and Africa, but in the world. I bring to you all the victims of violence across the world, in Europe and here in Latin America continue to build a family of peace, a family made of all your children. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. 
Amen. May the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Gonza. Blessings will pray for you, and Thank great you blessings will come to your work. Okay. Thank you very much. This has been Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast with Father Bill Watson. If you liked our program, please subscribe to our podcast channel. And may God bless you.